Who rocks mics and rocks them well, yo? It's the biz, baby, it's the biz. 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 All right, welcome back to the biz. Uh, I haven't probably done one of these in a long time. If you're watching this 10 years from now, we're still in coronavirus and I no longer do this podcast. But <laughs> welcome to the show, Jason Stone, who uh, are you under dying scene or multiple things or what? You're, you're the one who does the interviewing. Yeah, uh, I guess we'll go with underdying scene for now. Who yeah. knows what the, what the status is there, but... Just uh, don't try the website. Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> anything old is there, but nothing from November of 2019 on has been updated. So, it uh, and even actually, you know what? All the old pictures are gone too. So, it's, yeah. <clears throat> you would have thought someone would just do a backup. Uh, right. That's above my pay grade, see? <laughs> <laughs> this is the biz that is that is above my pay grade at the biz. so I, I mean you know we were just talking about like you know you, you said i'm running a little bit more professional than you just because i'm running my audio through logic and stuff like that mm -hmm. but it's true like how much effort do you want to put into this thing and i always am asking myself that i'm like you know it's not like I make money off of this. Right. So like, do I want to buy a different interface and a different microphone and do all this? And when at the end of the day, it's probably going to do the same thing it's going to do anyway. I, I have a fun little sure sort of fake bullet nice. mic now. Yeah. That uh, This is the first time I'm using it for a, like a music related thing. It sounds very good. I'm glad because... Every interview that I've done up until now has been with $7 headphones that I got at 7-Eleven that I use for my cell phone. So, and this I got for Christmas, so I didn't even buy it. So thanks, nice. mom and dad. Right. Uh, <laughs> so we can thank them for your audio quality. But you're like, we picked, I think we picked the one genre, really, where like if you're making money off of doing something like this, it's bad. Like, it, so... <laughs> I just went over 10 years. It, it's been 10 years and a month now that I have been writing or whatever I do for Dying Scene uh, and have made a total of $0. So right. good guess to have on the biz. But uh, every every person that I talk to about what I do that's outside of our little world thinks, A, that it's cool that we do it, and B, that like, oh, we must make money doing that. Right. I, I'm guessing people right now are learning that you haven't made a dime off of I've this. made a grand total of zero. Well, I should say I'm definitely in the red in the amount of money that I've made from doing dying sure. scene, whether it's from buying cameras or buying tickets for shows or because, you know, sometimes we do get comped, obviously, and that's nice if we're shooting a show. But sometimes I like to support my friends and the bands that I love. So I buy tickets anyway, whatever. Right. But yeah, I've I've made zero dollars. Well, I mean, it's a, it's like all right. So you go, you've been going to shows for for so long, and you've been paying for tickets, you know, and you support all these bands, and you take it even a step further and interview them and want to talk to them for God knows what reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what was the first one, and why did you want to do it? Um, so I started, well, okay. So to rewind like way, way back when I was in high school, I grew up in New Hampshire as 
some people may care about, some people don't. We didn't exactly have a big music scene uh, in my part of New Hampshire. Not that New Hampshire has ever really had much of a big music scene, unless you count Gigi Allen, I guess. or Some people would count him. Or, or Aerosmith, like back in the mid-70s. But uh, I wanted to get into journalism. Like I had two majors, basically, that I was picking from when it was time to go to college. And one was journalism, and the other... Uh, whether I'm ashamed to admit it or not, is criminal justice. And I remember having the internal conversation at 17 that, well, I feel like I'll probably have more chances at an actual career if I go into criminal justice and not journalism, because I don't feel like I'll actually make a lot of money doing journalism. Right. Uh, and I essentially regretted that from like day two, really. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, I went on to get a master's in criminal justice because that's useful. Um, but I so 10 years, 11 and 10 and a half years ago, uh, I got turned on to this site called Dying Scene. And I had been sort of attached to the punk rock scene. That was our little crew uh, in southern New Hampshire growing up. And I drifted away and went through my bad phases of listening to new metal and shit like that. Um, but. Then I, I started to miss going to shows, miss the whole punk rock world. Somebody turned me on to this site called Dying Scene, and I said, oh, that's pretty cool. So I started to read it, and then the guy that ran it, who uh, his name is Dave, for those that don't know, and we could maybe talk about his exploits <laughs> later. Uh, I love you, Dave, wherever in the Listen, world you are Dave right won't watch this. He's, <clears throat> he's too busy paragliding and if Dave, if Dave does watch this, that means shit went bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his last instagram post i think he was having like like brunch in the serengeti or something like i <laughs> yeah, yeah. i love the guy uh anyway so he put out an apb that like he was looking for writers and i said well how hard could that be i had a like i had a kid i was at home i was in grad school i said why not add something else to the plate Sure. So I did. And it started as just like news aggregate stuff. So we would check the MySpace feed and we would check the RSS feeds for bands that updated their uh, MySpace pages or whatever with tour dates or with music. And so we would just essentially write news stories based on that. Um, and I started to, I don't want to say get bored with that. I did a lot of album reviews for a while sure. and I ran out of adjectives like, there's only so many ways you can uh, describe the drum beat in a punk rock song. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I banned myself from using the word angsty because the word angsty got thrown around too much. I'm like, yeah, I can't do this. I need to do something else. So uh, we didn't, ha we had a few people that did interviews. And so I just wanted to join the team. And then it sort of became my thing after a while, because it was the thing I liked to do. And then I guess, some people told me I was sort of good at it. The first, I think the first interviews I did were email interviews. And I don't know if you do many email interviews, but usually they suck to do. My favorite interview I've ever done is an email interview. Like bullshit answers you gave or something like that. If you send me an email interview, I am putting a very small amount effort into my answers or I'm going to put a lot of effort into my answers and they're all going to be <laughs> fake. And we got one from someone in Ireland for like some like pop culture like paper in Ireland, in Dublin. And I was like, 
I don't, there's no reason we should be in this. I don't know if this is like. <laughs> How did they find out about you? Did you ever hear that? Oh, no, <laughs> like, I just got the email and they're like, they're like, we'd want to interview Rebuilder, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then like they sent it over, and it was just like the copy and paste. Like you always know when it's like it opens up and it says like, please give your band name and where you yeah, guys yeah. are from. And I was yeah. like, oh come on, <laughs> and uh, and it was like. I just went off into where I talked about our, our blank cover set at Fest. And I was like, you know, we were covering blank and we were really having a hard time. So we we emailed um, Scott Rayner and we <laughs> asked him because we were doing Dude Ranch. And we were like, how did you like play these parts? And he gave us some tips about it. And so we were FaceTiming with him, but we had some trouble with the guitar parts. So he, uh, we brought into the FaceTime video Tom DeLong as well. And it was like, that's the first time in years that they had ever even talked to each other was through this FaceTime to show us how to play their songs from Dude Ranch. And it just, it spiraled. I mean, it like spiraled so much into that to the point where I was like, I was like, you know, we did the set and afterwards we got like a, um, I was like, we uploaded the footage to YouTube and Tom saw it and sent us an email. And he was like, thank you so much for doing this. It meant so much to talk to Scott again and everything. And I was just, and like, I mean, I submitted it and they ran it. And I was like, I can't, like, I don't know who read this and was like, this has to be accurate. Yeah, right. (laughs) But they ran it. And (laughs) out of all the interviews I've ever done, that's the one I always remember. That is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I worked with a guy who had a side job, he was as a translator at a hospital in Lawrence, he's Puerto Rican, and he had a side business. So he would translate a lot of things and he would end up with tapes of like doctor's notes and things like yeah, that. And yeah. he, would, he would translate. And he didn't use, he wasn't using his tape recorder anymore. So he gave, he had an old Sony full-size cassette tape recorder, like right, not a micro, right. like a full-size cassette recorder. And he gave that to me. He's like, it's yours if you want it. Here's a few tapes. And so that was how I did the first handful of, interviews just being like uh put my phone on speaker and hit record and (laughs) and if you got to a certain point you had to stop and flip the tape over and yeah that's how i did the first handful of them and then i actually got a digital recorder and entered the 1990s um in in college i interviewed kate from the souls so yeah, yeah, yeah it was for my music business class and um I think my teacher was like, I want you I want you to interview someone you don't know. Because he knew that I knew a lot of people. And I was like, this will be easy. And he's like, interview someone you don't know. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, I love the Bouncing Souls. And I, you know, I, I've seen the DVD and everything. And I would love to talk to Kate from the Souls. And at this point, I hadn't really met her. Um, but Keith Schubert, my friend, who was their drum tech, who owns Taco Party in Somerville. I emailed him and I was like, do you have her contact? And he was like... Yep. Tell her I sent you over. She's great. And like I sent her an email and she was like, yep, any friend of like Keith is a friend of mine. We can totally do this interview and everything. And I just like, I was like, okay, I'm going to open up my laptop, open GarageBand, put the phone on speaker and just like put it next to the speaker on the computer (laughs) and like record it that way. And I remember like I called her and I think it was... I think it was Brian who picked up the phone and he was like, this is Brian. This is Kate's phone. She's driving right now. And I was like, yeah, this is Sal. I'm supposed to interview her for like this paper for school. And she was like, <laughs> he was like, yeah, she's running late. We'll, we'll be home like soon. I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, 
this is crazy. That was that was Brian from the Souls. That's my, fun. That's yeah. awesome. And and then I remember she got home. So I like she was like caught back in like ten minutes or something. And I would like literally just like sat there like watching the minutes go by and I was yeah. so nervous. I'd fucking never talked to like anyone before. And uh she got on the phone and she was like look, we can do this interview right now, but I'm having like a terrible day. Me and my boyfriend broke up. I'm super oh, drunk shit. right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, let's just do it. And she was like, okay. And then like, like we did the interview. Like she answered all my questions. It was like, it was awesome. Um, and then she was like, she was like, oh, I got to go. This TV show. I forget what TV show it was. She was like, I have to go watch this. Like I've been looking forward to this all day. Cause everything's like that. <laughs> And I was like, okay, she's like, we can finish up tomorrow. And I, and so I, rem- I remember we like finished up the, the rest of the conversation the next day. And I, and I just had it like, I don't even, I don't know if I have that file anywhere, but it was saved there. I remember when I met Kate, I was like, I was like, Hey, I'm Sal. I interviewed you for yeah, like yeah, thing, yeah. and she was like, I've done so many interviews. And the only one I ever remember is the one that I was drunk when I, <laughs> you interviewed me <laughs> and now we're friends. So it's like, it's funny because, uh, yeah, that was like that. That was the first experience I ever had interviewing anybody. Those are the best interviews. And that's why, best. and that's actually, I mean, shit like that is the reason that I still do them. Even with the website being down, like I went for a while, like, well, the website's down and it's probably not coming back for a while. So what do I do? Like, uh, I don't have anywhere else to write for. And I know a few other people that have said, oh, come write with us uh, whenever you want. But, and I appreciate that. But that, but then, so I started doing them over, well, in IGTV or Instagram live or whatever. And now over Zoom because it's so much easier. But that's part of why I still do them because like moments like that right. is so much cooler than just, I know people like the quick little uh, interviews that you'd see like in a column on spin magazine or whatever of like, you what, who's the, got those smelliest feet on the tour bus and shit like that. But I don't, I don't know. I, I hate don't, those. I never cared about things like that. That's the no. stuff that gets traction and gets clicks and whatever, but I never cared about things like that. Uh, I like to know why people write the songs they write and how they wrote this music and why they got into a band in the first place and stuff like that. And so those stories, those stories are awesome. Uh, yeah. And then when you get a relationship with people, either that either are notorious for not doing press or people that usually give just kind of boilerplate answers, but then they reach out to you afterwards and they're like, that was a really cool interview, man. Like, I'm glad we did that. Like, that's the reason that I do it. Even if, 27 people read it <laughs> right right i mean when i'm doing my interviews and i like to touch upon business and stuff like that there's obviously things that people don't want to like talk about when it comes to money and things like right. that which i never want any like real amount anyway because like you know it's tacky to talk about like how much right. you're making and stuff like that except when it's zero because then when it's zero nobody yeah, cares, right. you know but when you're like, you know, lofting questions to people and you're, you know, when you come upon shit that they probably don't want you to ask you about, uh, have they like stopped the interview and been like, I don't want to talk about that. Or like, you know, like, or do you kind of know ahead of time? This just kind of popped into my head because the anniversary of it was yesterday, the day before, but, um, I did a story a few years ago with the loved ones. So yeah, I've known Dave Hawes, uh, I don't know, for seven or eight years now, sort of personally um, and have written a lot of 
inter- stories with him, interviewed him a lot and stuff like that. And so he texted me three, three and a half years ago. He was like, Hey, the 10th anniversary of build and burn the second loved ones record is coming up. We did a 10th anniversary tour for the first album. We're not obviously going to do that for the second album, but we want to denote it in some way. Do you feel like writing a story on it? I said, well, can I talk to everybody? He said, you can do whatever you want. So yeah. he gave me, uh, he gave me Chris Gonzalez's <clears throat> number and Mike Sneeringer's number and, um, and Brandon Wall, oh, David Walsh's number. And then I hit up Pete and Brian from the souls. Cause they produced that album. It was yeah, the first yeah. album they produced. And so that was sort of an interesting, uh, experiment because I had them all talk about the process of making the album. And they obviously, I mean, the band obviously fizzled out after that album and went on indefinite hiatus and that's a whole thing, but to get the four core members, like their points of view on the making of that album and none of it was really off the record, but it was definitely like, they definitely had different opinions on songs and what they were going for and the experience and then add Pete and Brian to the mix. Pete and Brian just thought the whole thing was awesome because they, yeah, sure. <laughs> they were just getting drunk every night. And yeah. I think like Springsteen was uh, rehearsing for a tour or a big show or something at the convention center in Asbury Park, which yeah. is down the street from um, Kate's house where they were recording. So they would just like hang out outside the convention center waiting to see if they could find Springsteen and then get drunk and then go back and record. And that was kind <laughs> of the whole cycle. So Pete and Brian thought it was awesome. But yeah, the other yeah. guys like to hear sort of the different takes on different songs and what they liked and what they didn't, that was sort of a cool thing. None of it ended up being really off the record, but sure. there was definitely stuff that a lot of them like thought they could do differently or didn't like or did like and vice versa. So that was a sort of cool little Well, experiment. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's cool that they let you just kind of do whatever you want, you know? And yep. I think if you're trying to tell the story, it's important for them to just kind of back off and just let the story happen. You know? It also ended up being like, <clears throat> I forget off the top of my head. It was something ridiculous, like 21,000 words. I think I ended up writing I wrote like the backstory of the band and then I wrote like a track by track where I talked to each of them individually about the songs and then it became and then there was this whole addendum that was like the touring cycle afterwards and how they broke up and it ended up being way more than I wanted it to be again for a total of zero dollars and sure. I, I think <laughs> exactly. yeah I yeah. think the guys in the band at least read it <laughs> right right yeah but yeah for the sure. amount of like but that's a thing that i like doing so i don't care that i spend a lot of time and energy that's to me that was sort of that's the stuff that i like to do and if there was a way to parlay that into making money obviously i probably would have done that a long time yeah, ago can but. you imagine if your job was just to interview bands and like you made all your money from that well i mean look at so i like a lot of uh rock and roll biographies and stuff so i read yeah. a lot of biographies and there are people who through the 1980s anyway until shit sort of changed but there are people who made their living just as music journalists right which which blows my mind like <laughs> they just got to like they just got to hang out with i think that's even how like springsteen's manager john landau i think that's what he started as he was right. just a writer and he hung out with bruce and then he just became his manager for like 50 years but that used to be the way that things went like there were professional journalists it's like, you know, like the reason why these people became music business managers wasn't because they were like, well, I want to learn about the music business. It's just that they were there. Right. They were there. And someone was like, hey, man, I trust you more than like fucking this other guy. 
Right. You know, and they're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. We're like, well, we'll figure it out, man. Like, you know, like, and that's how a lot of these people got these jobs. The Beatles first manager, like his parents opened a store in Liverpool and he wanted to have a record section in the store. So he just had like a small record section in the store. And because it was in Liverpool and it was a record section in the store, the guys used to like John and Paul used to go in there and hang out and he just became their manager. He's like it, Brian Epstein, and that's like he just became the Beatles' manager. Like, holy shit! That's so crazy. That's so crazy. Yeah, I just happened to read like a big Beatles biography, so I had that one on the tip of my brain. But that's that's how it happened. You're right. It's not like somebody went to school for a music business. It's like somebody was the least degenerate in the circle, so he's going to be your manager for now. They're like, dude, you're good with money, so like. Can you be my manager? You know, not even you're good with money. You're just better with money than better I am. than yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think I saw somebody on TikTok uh, post the other day. One, there's a lot of like TikTok is like, if you like stuff, you now get in that algorithm of it's like, oh, you must love the music business. So yeah, I'm gonna yeah. show you everything about the music business. Yeah. Oh my god, please don't. but i'm in that and there's so many people on tiktok who talk about the music business or one guy was like well let me show you how much the artist really gets for a 20 dollars t-shirt and like broke down and was like venue takes uh 15 and like right off the bat i was like okay well i guess it depends yeah i mean it depends you know like that's kind of true, you know, like yeah. you can, you can, one, you can lie to the venue and two, if you're usually <laughs> an opening band, they don't take that much from you. you. Usually haul ass out of there before they even ask you. Yeah. But yes, if you're the headlining band and they take 15%, yeah, they take 15%. Now you're talking about like a live nation style venue, like a, like a venue venue, not like a. Right. Like, They're not yeah, playing like Carly's a, kitchen. Daniel's yeah, not right. taking any money from right. anyone for that. You right. know? So I was like, I was like, okay. We'll give them that one. And it's like, you know, and then your manager takes like 20%. And I was like, what the fuck manager is taking 20% off of this like fucking little ass band? And I was like, okay. I was like, I don't know. Like usually with those bigger bands, it's about like, it can be 10 to 15%. Like 20 is really high, but I was like, okay, sure. And then they were like, and then you have to like pay like, uh, there's five to 10% for your legal representation. And then there's five to 10% for your agent too. And I was like, these dudes are fucking selling a $20 t-shirt in this yeah. like little ass venue. Like they don't need all it. And then they get down to basically where there's like literally like $5 left. And then they're like, and then split you, between the band split members between four people. And I'm yeah. like, you guys split all the merch between four people. I'll tell you right now, fucking <laughs> like <laughs> most bands I know, like, you like, you know, I, I always tell people like the way that money has always flowed in rebuilder. Yeah. So in Den Ellington, my old band, which nobody has to look up and check out, but I'm just using <laughs> it for an example so you can know, but like in Den Ellington, there was never any money to go around. There was never any money to go around to even keep it operational. We just mm. never made money. There's the cats here now. So nice. we just, we, we never made money. So it was like one of those things where we would stop for gas because we need gas to get home from the show. And we're all just looking at each other like, who's got who's yeah, yeah. cash for gas? You know, like I, I remember like our guitar player too, like any money we made, I was like, do you want to hold on to it and put it in your bank account? Cause like, 
I don't think I even had a bank account. Yeah, and yeah. It was like, oh yeah, totally. And then like fucking who knows where that money went, right. <laughs> you know, like right. in Rebuilder, it was just different right off the bat. You know, it was like, okay, we should save all the money we ever get. And from like the first show to the last show that we've played to even the live show, you know, it was just like, there's a bank account that is a business bank account for Rebuilder. The money goes in there. I have the card for it. And like, I know what's in there. And when we tour, nobody has to shell out money for gas. Yeah. If we can't, if we don't have a place to stay, we need a hotel. No one's paying for that. You know, if we like a lot of times, if we did well in merch that night or even just got paid well from a show, you know, we'll cover the Taco Bell food afterwards. Right. You know, no one ever paid money to record at all. No one ever put money for that. Um, anything that we've ever wanted to do, even when we were like, you know, let's just do a short West Coast tour. Um, we'll pay for everyone's plane tickets. Maybe we don't make money out of this because it's a short little like right. five, six day thing. But our loss would actually be a lot less because we're going out for less time. Which makes it, you know, and like we've never done Pacific, like we've never done very well in California. So we're like, let's tell California to fuck off and we'll just stay in Pacific Northwest where we're yeah. doing really well. We came home from that tour and I think we made like $200 profit. And I was like, wow. that's great. That means everyone's yeah. paying to get paid for. I didn't look at that $200 and go, all right, now there's four people in the band. <laughs> so, you know, like, right. What, for what? You know, like we left for like a week, you know, right. like all right. of us have jobs for the most part like even now during this time where we haven't had jobs when we did like you know the live show i was like all right the live show did really well i can afford to give everyone x amount of money um i was like i mean daniel was like look we're making like unemployment right now and extra money yeah. like i'm just not gonna take my portion and like i'm gonna leave it in there because we want to try to press this on a record and everyone in the band was like, yeah, man, just like leave it in there. Like this was just fun and like thing to do. And I was like, cool. Thank you so much yeah, for, yeah. you know, doing that. But I gave everyone the option and like, it's honestly like the, I've have found it being like the best way to like run, run this band is we've been able to do all the things we want to do. We've never been, I've never had to look at it and been like, I don't think we can afford to do that. It's always been a matter of like time and can people get the time off? yeah, yeah. It would, it would be nice to be on this next tier of being like, this is your job. So there, you know, like we will practice three to four times a week if we want to. And that is now our job is that we make so much money off of Rebuilder that we have literally <laughs> nothing else right. that we have to do, which would be great. But, you know, like I just kind of like it, it, it's it's a lot harder to have people stick around and want to do something when you have a band where you're like, you got to pay your dues every month. Like the one thing everyone pays for in this band is like the practice space because you're, yeah. you're storing your gear there. And like we all just kind of split that. And that's always like the one thing everyone pays for, because I think if the band had to pay for that every month, we'd eventually just be broke. And the money yeah, wouldn't yeah. be there to do the stuff. But it's one of those things that when I started helping out other bands and noticing that that no one had any money i was like why don't you guys have any money yeah, yeah. like well there's you know if you're a ska band it's like well there's eight of us <laughs> you know right. like 
you you giving everyone 15 bucks at the end of the night like just hold on to it save right. it you know right. put it for the gas for the next show so you can actually do things you know did somebody give you that advice is that why you did things differently with rebuilder than with dead ellington or no i think it was just i wanted everything to be different with rebuilder than dead ellington I was like, you know, I was like, I don't want to press a thousand CDs that stay in the basement forever because yeah. that was the way everyone knew when you ordered CDs, a thousand was like the price point that made most sense. 500 to a thousand, there was like a difference of something like a couple hundred bucks. So you were like, ah, we won't sell a thousand. Yeah, 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 right. But we should get a thousand. <laughs> I still have like a thousand dead on in the basement you know like and i i've I've thrown out full boxes into the trash just like here we go you know fucking newberry comics ain't taking them you know like (laughs) just thrown out full boxes of cds and when i made rebuilder i was like yeah i don't want to ask anyone for money and i i even remember a conversation i had with yosef who did a lot of our art who's done art for everyone for as long as i can remember but yosef once as a joke it's so funny that this was yosef's joke but he said (laughs) as a joke he was like i want to make a band that doesn't pay for anything like not even the instruments like the concept of the band comes alive but we have to get like the instruments and everything by not paying anything we can get it donated we can do this and like you know you just can't pay for anything at all and i remember that and i was just kind of like <laughs> i wonder if you'd be able to do it you know and yeah. like i think in my thought process i was just like yeah i mean like maybe we can just make it so that no one's paying out of their pocket but right. things still cost money because that's the world we live in right. you know um and i think i like even like because our you know we had the first it was technically the second show but it was opening for dropkick at house of blues and i was like well, I don't want to do a thousand CDs. I'll do a thousand stickers with with our Bandcamp on the back to the EP, and I will yeah. pass those out. And then I can look online and see if anyone went and listened to it. Yeah, that was like, and I was like, that thousand stickers are cheaper than a thousand CDs by far. Right. I can see if anyone listens to this. We're a brand new band. No one knows who we are. Let's just make an EP that's free that didn't cost us anything because Craig recorded it in our practice space. And let's just put it out. Yeah. See what happens. Um, so I think it was just since that was like the catalyst for me, it was always like, you know, even now I'm like, how much stuff can I do on my own? Like graphic design wise, you know, like I can't, I couldn't, I can't design the live record, but I can do all the mock-ups, you know, yeah, for yeah. like the merch and stuff. So like all those, the pre-sale mock-ups, I did all those, you know, and like they looked it looked like fucking as if like fucking pure pure music or volume put them out yesterday right. for their new band, you know, like, and uh, you know it just takes like Google searching, like Photoshop vinyl template mockup. <laughs> this one looks good, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. and it's like you know, but it, it's funny because like you know if it is like a bigger label, they would like hire this graphic designer to do all that and pay they could bill for like five hundred dollars just to do the mock-ups maybe more you know right and i'm just like rent like i ain't spending that money like how much shit can we do in-house and that's right. always been like our thing and it's just like i don't know I, I i years later talking to my buddy sean flores he he was like he used to manage a band that will remain nameless but he's, <laughs> like, uh, he's like i tried to get them to do that forever he's like he's like 
I'm telling you right now, there's not a lot of bands out there that have like a bank account with like a good float in there yeah. to make their band work. And I was like, you, no. And he's like, no. He's like, I, I saw that with all the bands that I helped. And he's like, in the band I managed, I forever was just like, you guys need to do some tours where you're not paying each other. We have so much debt and you guys need to get to a point where you have float in that account to make yeah, the yeah. band work, you know? So, I mean, I'm happy I did it that way. And, and not to, not to uh, circle the conversation back to Dynasty, but truthfully, when we were really building a decade ago, especially, um, essentially everything got done in-house. So we had an IT person and a graphic designer essentially in-house. So Dave, who is sort of the brains of the operation, he and this guy, Lucas, would get together after work. They were both in on the ground floor of MySpace. So they right. knew each other from there. And Lucas was a programmer and could design. So we had like an internal web designer. Uh, and anytime something needed to change at the site or be edited or added to, Dave and Lucas would just get together, have a couple beers after work and hammer it out. And then it would be right. done. Well, Lucas passed away actually, sadly, like oh, uh, like out of nowhere too once. Uh, and then Dave they all moved on from their companies. He moved to the East coast and now moved to South Africa. Um, yeah. So we don't, so the people that we had in house to do all this stuff, just kind of people get older, people hit their twenties, people hit their thirties, people have kids, people go to grad school, people get real jobs. And so they don't really want to do it anymore. And when you, Dave for a long time, and he has talked about this a lot is that, at the, he was in on this other company on the ground floor and he didn't necessarily have an awful lot to do as the company was getting ready to go public. So he had a lot of time to just recruit staff members, to teach people how to write, teach people how to use WordPress, design the site and stuff like that. Then his company went public and whatever. And so he had a lot more responsibilities. So he just didn't have the time to do that. And right. so that's kind of why it has fizzled out. And so we've had people look at it over the course of the last year. He has. Um, and it's really just amount of like to get a good web designer to actually do work on a site. It's like, we don't have the benefit of just having Lucas nearby who can do it. It's like, right, right. do you want to spend a few grand to have somebody redo a site for you and write code for you? And, Which is tough. Or, or more than that. It comes down to like what we said, where it's like, how, like, is it even worth it? You know, like, right. let's, you know, let's, let's say we, you had to hire someone, like someone was like, I'll do it for like three grand, you know, right. to come in and redesign and do the site. It's dying zine still exists as like on Twitter, probably. Yeah. Right. And yeah. like, still exists on Instagram. Yeah. We're in a day where people barely visit websites. Right. You know, like. I bet you there's a lot of people who don't know the dying scene websites down because they're like, well, I see the updates all the time on like, you know, Instagram, all right. this stuff, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it, maybe it's just shifted that way. So it's like, you know, do you spend that whole lot of money? It's like, you know, for what, what's the return on it? You know, we're right. not making back money on it. Um, but you know, it's like, there's people that like are in this scene who do have skills and stuff like that. And like, that's when people like help each other out to do it because they believe in it. Like you do right. these interviews and stuff like that. Right. And it's nice. Like, I mean, that's when you had Luke to do it. He was yeah. he probably just loved music and punk rock and stuff like that. Yeah. I know? think he was even like a metal guy. Cause we had a, we had like a metal sister site called metal riot for a while. I don't know if it still exists, <laughs> but 
but they they sort of came up at the same time and then dying scene took off um but i think lucas from what i understand was more of like a metal guy right. but he was just friends with dave and they worked at myspace together so they would hang out and that was what it was but it was just fun for them to do and everybody yeah. that we had sort of in like that early team uh that just did it because we felt like doing it because it's punk which rock. is which is how a lot of this goes you know it's right. like there's a lot of great bands that when they eventually start fizzling out, it's just because like people get older and they get more responsibilities and then they're just like, maybe it just becomes not fun, but you know, it starts off as being just like this. It's a good time with friends, you know? Like, right. Um, and like, I mean, I remember so many bands that I liked when I was in high school, I was always like, Oh, why did that band break up? There were such short lived. And it was like, well, they were like 17 and two of those dudes went off to college and it was right. all over. You know? right. And it's like, how many bands do you know of that where you're like, oh man, but they made like this fucking sick record when they were like teenagers, you know? That's a thing that was, it was sort of lost on me for a long time. It's like when you're 15 or 16 listening to a band, you think, oh my God, these guys are awesome. Well, those guys are 22. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not 40 year old guys. You're not listening right. to Zeppelin records. It's like when you're 17 listening to Blink, well, Scott Rayner, when Dude Ranch came out, was probably what, like 22, maybe yeah. 23? Yeah. So, <laughs> like yeah. not much older than we were. Uh, and so it, that's a thing that was sort of lost on me for a while. You always picture the bands. And that, now it's funny to look back at pictures. I just stumbled upon some pictures from Warp Tour 97. Um, which Blank played at, which that was my first Warp Tour out yeah. in Northampton, Mass. And looking at the pictures of Blank and the Bostones and Limp Biscuit and Real Big Fish from back then, like those guys were babies. You don't, you, I, they didn't seem like babies at the time, but those guys were like infants. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I remember like The Explosion is one of my favorite bands. I remember seeing them so many times when I was like in high school at various shows, which they, Never packed in any shows. Like they were one of those bands. I was just like, I don't know why. why. Like they, like bands love them, but they never had this like huge crowd in sellout shows all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I loved seeing them. And then they were on Warp Tour, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, man, these probably these dudes probably like fucking living it up at home. Like they probably like got these big ass homes that were yeah, paid yeah. for for the explosion, you know, and like. Like they probably have like all like they all each have a recording studio in their right. basement, you know. Right. Like meanwhile, the dude who's probably making the more most out of that band is just the merch guy fucking selling t-shirts. <laughs> right. There, which I learned when I went on Warp Tour, I didn't make a lot of money on Warp Tour, but I was making more than the band members, and I thought that that was so interesting. I was like, I'm making more than the band members, but I was like, but they just have to like work work for like yeah, yeah right half hour you right. know and then they get to hang out all day i was like my ass is in this tent all day it is a hundred thousand degrees out right and, and it's yeah. not my band right you know? <laughs> right i'm just like selling the t-shirts you know and i remember like i got into a couple arguments with band members because they were like well you're getting paid more i was like you want to switch <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> Let's uh, not to big market tease or anything, but so I'm starting the interview show back up again and I have one booked this week and then next week, two former members of the explosion will be on the show. So, or at least one, but I think two, cause I think both of the guys from space cadet are coming on. So that'll be fun. Oh, nice. Sweet. So not, you know, the biz is my show. 
and you know not to tell you how to interview bands (laughs) but if you're interviewing two dudes from the explosion it would be interesting if you talked about that last record that they put out because i don't even remember everything about that record except that it seemed like a biz nightmare i you know what i think you're right i think like from what i remember is that so the band broke up and technically we're still under virgin which virgin had like clothes like virgin like yeah, yeah label department like was like over i saw that Vinny from less than jake on paper and plastic said that he was still going to put out the last explosion record right on paper and plastic or it might have even been fueled by ramen at that point i don't remember I but, think it was paper and plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And was, and I remember reading a thing, I think it might've been even on punk news that was like, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's a cool record. It still sounds like explosion. It's kind of weird at times, but like, I think it should still see the light of day. Then it never came out on paper and plastic. And I think there was probably, probably even an issue of trying to get the record from Virgin. Um, and then, I remember being given it like an illegal rip from Yosef. He was like, yeah. I don't know if you ever heard this, but I have this like this, this uh, zip file. Yeah, <laughs> and he yeah. sent it to me and I was like, this is so good. He's like, it's the last explosion record. And I was like, how'd you find it? And he was like, I think he like, like Napster LimeWire times. Like, oh, wow. Found it through that. Yeah. And it was so good. And I, you know, and then. I never heard anything about it. I think I even tried asking like in like a Q&A thing once about it and didn't hear anything. And then I saw that Kate from the Souls was releasing it on Chunksha. Right. They had all gone to a wedding together. And in that talked about like, you guys should release it and then be like the special guest on like the home for a, a holiday show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it came out on that. But even on that record, like which I mean, when it came out, I bought it instantly. It's missing one of the tracks that is on the ripped file that I have. I thought that there was, and it's been it's been a decade or whatever since time. I even thought about this story. But I feel like I feel like there was still a label thing. Like there was somebody because they switched band members or there were a couple that went in and out, but somebody went on to another band, but they were under contract with like a new label. So then they couldn't appear. They couldn't appear in print on the stuff that was going to be on paper. And pl- I think there was something weird, like band memory related like that. So there might be a song that somebody had played on, but then yeah. they weren't in the band anymore. And then they couldn't like they, their new label wouldn't let them appear in the, is something weird like that. I don't remember the story because it's been like 10 I, years. I don't either. I think, I think, I think we all just have bits and pieces of things that may or may even not be true. Right. <laughs> Which we'd be great to know. Right. So it's, I mean, it's sort of interesting to, that, and then David Walsh went on to be in the loved ones. And so they had right. their whole like thing too, with uh, moving band members and labels. And st- so to have him be like the, the linchpin between these two, sort of iconic bands is pretty cool for a kid who lives in like Clinton, Massachusetts. Too. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I always thought that was so interesting. I was like, cause like, I was like, this means it's past hands through like three different labels at this point. 
for something that isn't making any money for a band right. that's completely gone. You know, right. um, I mean, I've even heard this issue with um, Concord Music Group, which I don't know if you're aware of Concord Music Group. I uh, you know the name. Yeah. Concord Music Group is kind of just a big parent company that buys smaller music groups and they just repress records. That's essentially what they do. Um, they own Nitro Records. So they bought Nitro. Oh, right. And they kind of just own Nitro to just keep repressing the stuff that on Nitro that made money, which is probably right. just AFI and Offspring stuff. Right. So that means that like a lot of like probably the Vandal stuff that was on there and No Trigger, all that stuff doesn't really get repressed. Right. Um, and I think I even like talking to the No Trigger guys was like, yeah, we like once tried to contact Concord about repressing and either didn't get an answer back or got an answer back that was like, sure, you guys can repress it. We just got to pay this, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of dollar licensing <laughs> fee and it's all yours, you know? Right. And they were just like, fuck that, you know? Right. So, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's back to like, these, they don't own their music, you know? It's like, and now this parent company that doesn't even know who they are. Right owns their music right you know um and even they're happened. just a folder in somebody's filing cabinet Maybe. exactly exactly yeah. you know um i even remember talking to uh i think i i said to matt flood at asbestos records i said you should re-release you should put the suicide machine stuff on vinyl and he's like i've tried nobody at hollywood records like no remembers that they were yeah. on there, you know, and Jay from Suicide Machines was like, you got my blessing to go for it. I don't know if you're going to get anybody. He's like, we don't know anyone who works there anymore. Yeah. So that was so long ago. And I just, you know, I, I can only imagine like someone sitting at a desk there being like, someone wants a ska band that we had. On our label. <laughs> what, what do I do with this? Right. Right. <laughs> do we have this? They're asking right. for the masters. Where do I find that? You know, like there's just like a room somewhere where they just like have filed away shit to never see ever again, you know, and maybe it happened because one one ambitious intern who knew the van song was like, oh, we had that. Yeah, I think it's in there. Somebody has an email sitting in their folder that they just pinned to the top. They're like, uh, I guess I should look into this someday. Right. And that was like right. seven years ago, probably. Right, right, right. <laughs> Is there someone that you've tried to get for years that just never has happened? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, nobody will ever, I think, get Tim Armstrong. Uh, I mean, what kind of an area are you going to get out of that? I'm fascinated by the guy, though. Because Why? like, especially, yeah, <laughs> especially, especially like if you, if I tried to hook up with Tim Armstrong over Zoom and, and he had the link and he signed on and I saw that like Tim Armstrong has joined the waiting room. I uh, like that time between when I hit admit to let him right. in and when his camera popped up, I would be fascinated because I want to know like where Tim Armstrong is doing an interview from. Like, I what guarantee you his camera would pop up and then no audio would happen. <laughs> And he's trying to figure out the audio and then it goes black. <laughs> but even where, like where I'm fascinated by stuff like that and trying to, or trying to be the guy who gets the Tim Armstrong interview. You know what I mean? Like, cause he doesn't talk to anybody. I've been shot down a bunch of times and I will always ask like there's, but there's weird ones too. Like Craig Finn, I, I from the hold steady yeah. I've, uh, inquired about for a while and i've met him in person a few times and he's been great but he just like 
don't know. He does like the CBS Sunday morning show. Sure. Right, right, right. Uh, there's a few like that, but I feel like a lot of the rest of them that I've tried uh, have said yes at some point. I mean, I didn't think I didn't think I would interview Tim Barry. Tim Barry doesn't like to do press. He doesn't like to talk to people and whatever. And then I became like one of the only people that Tim Barry would talk to because we've had cool conversations. I didn't I don't know think, why people don't like to do press. It doesn't make any sense to me. Some people don't like talking about the answer that I get the most when people say that they don't like to do press is they don't like talking about themselves. They don't like talking about their music and stuff like that, which I don't know. And that's what Tim has said a few times. The first time I interviewed Tim, uh, I was in my car. I was, I went on like lunch break at work, went into my car at the Lynn Armory where I was working at the time, got on the phone with him and he was trying to, his oldest daughter, Leela was little. She was in a high chair and he was trying to feed her outside while doing the interview. And it's Tim Barry. So he of course has chickens running around yeah. his yard. And so the chickens were trying to jump up on the high chair. So you've got the chickens in the background <laughs> scratching. The kid's like, ah, what the f-? He's like, I'm sorry, man. I got to put you on hold for a minute. I thought this was going to work with like. That's great. That's that was, awesome. That's that was so awesome. awesome. What the first time I talked to Ben Nichols, and again, I had known him for a few years. Yeah. But the first time I actually talked to him, talked to him was the album tour for the last, or the album cycle for the last album. And again, he had, he's got his daughter Izzy now and she was being potty trained, I think at the time. And he had to, he's like, oh, uh, hold on a minute, Izzy, what are you doing? And so she had her little potty and she picked up her little potty training potty (laughs) and like brought it over to the actual toilet in the bathroom and just like threw the whole thing. He's like, uh, hold on a minute. (laughs) I gotta go take care of. (laughs) But those moments are awesome. Awesome. Uh, I, although, so I was talking, like, I feel like I'm name dropping and I such a dick to do that. So talking, you have to, cause your, your thing is that you interview people. So right. This I know is what this is. I was, I was sitting right here actually on my porch talking to, uh, Kevin and Amy from the interrupters, I think either last album cycle or the album cycle before. And I was talking to them on album release day. And then Kevin was like, can I put you on hold for a minute? I said, yeah, that's fine. And so they were on, I was on hold for like a minute and they came back. They're like, I don't know why we had to put you on hold. I was like, sure. Well, it's album release day. And that was Tim Armstrong on the phone saying, Hey, congratulations. <laughs> Cause he puts out their album. I was like, you know, that's, that's not a bad reason to be put on hold. I suppose. I'll, t- I'll tell you my Tim Armstrong interaction. So I was on warp tour, uh, working for big D and it was the first time I was doing all of Warp Tour as like a crew member. And it's very high school esque. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, like day one, getting your food tray like at lunchtime and just looking around and being like, Where can I sit? And having yep. like no place to sit. And I, yep. I felt very uncomfortable and awkward. So uh, I'm looking at where to sit and Chris Bush, who plays, who played sax for Big D, was like sitting somewhere. I was like, oh, I can sit with him because I know him. So like I sit with him and he's like, what's up? And I'm like, what's up? And we're eating. And then like he's sitting like with a bunch of people that I don't know across from him. And I was like, I think that's Tim Armstrong, but I don't <laughs> I don't know if it is. Yeah, like, yeah. It doesn't look like Tim Armstrong, but like maybe. And like. Chris left. So it was just me at this table with like all these people. And like, I just kind of like 
mind my own business a little bit and just kind of like ate my food. And then he was like, he was like, he, I think he said to me, he was like, he's like, what's up, man? Like, what's your name? I was like, I'm Sal. He's like, I'm Tim. And I was like, shit, fucking Tim Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and he go, and I, he was like, what do you do here? I was like, I'm selling, I'm selling merch, a merch guy for a big D and the kids table. He goes, do they have horns? Uh, it's a ska band, big D and the kids table. He goes, do they have horns? I said, yeah. He goes, I need them to record on my track. Can you bring them over to me? I said, yeah, man, I'll introduce you. <laughs> and so like <laughs> later, like, like I went back to the bus and I was like, I met Tim Armstrong. <laughs> he wants you to record ho- horns on his track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they're like, what do you mean? I was like, that's just what he said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So I see him later, and I was like, hey, man. And he was like, he was like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like he remembered me. And yeah. I was like, I was like, I was like, those guys will record horns with you. He was all right, all right. Tell them to find me like tomorrow at my bus. And I was like, okay. And then like I just relayed that message, and they're like, where's his bus? I go, I don't fucking know, man. Yeah, like, right. I have no clue whatsoever. And then I think like I think they did at some point. Like they found his bus, and he was like, I got this track. I need horns for or whatever. And I think I might have even been the one who like made that introduction for that band, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Tim Armstrong. But uh, every time I saw Tim Armstrong after that, like I'd watch a band side stage if I was taking a break or something, and he'd see me, he'd make a point to come over and say hi to me, and I was like, "This is so weird that Tim That's... Armstrong is coming over and saying hi to me." So then, like, we were talking after one of the shows, and I was like, "I'm a lefty," and he was like, "Oh, you're a lefty. You gotta come look at my guitar." And so he brings me on the bus <laughs> and he shows me his guitar. And I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's great. He's like, yeah. He's like, let's go watch a movie. So then we're just in the <laughs> front lounge watching a movie. And there's like the two like security guards are there. And they're just like kind of looking at each other like, who the fuck is this kid? <laughs> and I'm just like sitting there like it is. We're not talking. Yeah, yeah, right. This movie is playing. Security is like, we don't know what the fuck is going on in here. What the vibe is. And like Tim just like watching, I was like, "All right, man, I'm gonna catch you later." He's like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Okay." And then I just like got off the bus, and like every time I saw him, he like said hi to me. He made a point to say hi to me, and like that was it. And I remember like I think when my buddy Judd was selling merch for Rancid, it was like last time they came to House of Blues, so it was like a lot. It wasn't that long ago. It was probably like within like the last five years or something. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was like twentieth anniversary, maybe for Outcome the Wolves. Right, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, it was like two nights or something. I'm I'm helping Judd sell, you know, and I just at that point, I mean, I just show up, you know, near doors or whatever, and just like set up and everything, and and we sell. And afterwards, I was like leaving, and like. I think maybe interrupters were on that show or something. He, yeah. he went or like someone went, he went to say hi to someone in like the little green room that's on the first floor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And right. I was leaving out the back door. So I talked to him and I was like, oh, should I say hi to him? I don't know. I was yeah, like, yeah. You know, he's not going to fucking remember me. It's so long ago. And he makes eye contact. He's like, yo man, what's up? <laughs> he <like comes> up <laughs> says hi to me. And I was just like, this is so strange that this yeah. man remembers me just from like eating fucking at the same table as him as warp tour. This sounds like a you FaceTime Scott Rayner from Blink-182 to get right. the Right, it completely <laughs> does, but this is completely true. <laughs> this one is like completely true, and it's very strange. <laughs> that is wild. 
That is wild. Yeah, I I find him to be a fascinating like creature. I, don't, I mean, I guess person, but he's. I feel like he's a fascinating creature. Like I, I'm genuinely interested in where he would be talking to me from and what he would, he doesn't do press. So he'll never talk to anybody. See, I'm, I'm like interested, like what is a day in the life of Tim Armstrong? Like, yeah. does that guy go to Whole Foods? Like, right. Alone. Right. <laughs> you know, like, does he have prime when he checks out on the app? Like what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Like, what does I, he like, do? You know, like, or is right. somebody like hired to take care of him? You know, like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm so curious about this too. I have no idea. Like there's been people that I've wanted to interview that are outside the punk rock world. Right. But that maybe Jason Isbell, for example, but because sure. I write for a punk rock site, it's like, well, he's like, he, there'd have to be a really good reason for him. See, to I feel like people that. would be more interested in talking about that. You know, like, like if it's like, I'm Jason Isbell, I do like fucking tons of country, like interviews, this punk rock dude wants to talk to him. Let's go, you know. There are layers upon layers to get to Mr. Isbell, and that's all. I mean, sure, that's where I will sure. leave that. Right, right, right. As the, those, that's been tried. <laughs> like if Food Network wanted to interview me, I'd be like, let's talk. I love food. Jason Isbell was on Food Network. <laughs> you see? I th- or I think it was Food Network, because I think Trisha Yearwood has like a cooking show. I mean, and they, sure. she lives near Jason Isbell, so they went over to her house, played a song, and cooked like a frittata or something <laughs> sounds like a very white thing to do. That, uh, that may have been the whitest thing i ever said actually <laughs> i mean the frittata was in there so that helped <laughs> yeah but it's a nashville tennessee frittata so, I mean, exactly <laughs> egg whites <laughs> all right well i've kept you long enough yeah this is cool man i appreciate yeah, I, it thanks I, for I, having me on i how Every barrel has a bottom, so you had to yeah. you had to scrape the bottom if you're talking to the guy from Dying Scene. But. No, I was always, you know, I was I figured that you don't get interviewed that often. I don't. I was just thinking about this today. I've been on uh, Mabel Syndrome's podcast twice, and the Dying Scene Radio, the new edition of Dying Scene Radio, not the one hosted by the Proud Boy a few years ago, <laughs> but the new exi- edition of it once, and I think that might be it. That might be my... Uh, interview subject history right there yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that's great i appreciate you being on the biz and uh you know uh i hope that we can have we can bring you back and talk some more yeah when i uh i'll think of something that is related to t- maybe <laughs> maybe i'll rebirth dying scene and that'll be like the you'll get to hear all the ins and outs of the headaches that is rebirthing a website from the yeah when up. the website comes back we'll have another conversation that'll be so, awesome it'll be 50 years old by that point <laughs> <laughs> it'll be an alt country website <laughs> right exactly exactly yeah th- thanks man this is cool i'm gonna stop recording and then yeah, yeah, i'll yeah. finish up with you <laughs> sounds good thanks man yeah absolutely Thank you for checking out this episode of The Biz. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on wherever you listen and leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can follow The Biz on Instagram at Sal Ellington. You can buy merch at thebizbaby.square.site. If you'd like to donate to The Biz on Venmo, it's at Sal Ellington. Thank you for your support. We'll see you next episode.